0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church's The Upper Room. Our podcast addresses the Christian's role in today's culture. We hope you enjoy it and find it informative. To help support our ministry, please consider becoming a subscriber and financial contributor. Links to donate are on our website at bfc 4 Now let's get going. Hi, right, this is Scott Kimball. I am one of the associate pastors of Bible Fellowship Church, and I thought I'd take this minute to do a little bit of a book review. It won't be an exhaustive or thorough book review because I'm still reading the book, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this whole idea of doing book reviews. I think when I thought about the idea of this format and doing book reviews, I guess I didn't realize how difficult it would be to coordinate getting two different people to read the same book and then get together and talk about it. I guess I naively assume that we're all busy reading books and that we could kind of get that on the same page, but everybody's doing their own research, doing their own book reading. And so it's it's turned out to be a little tougher than I than I first thought it would be. But that's okay. We do have a good book review that I know for sure is coming up. With my fellow associate pastor Bob Rem and a friend of his that have been reading through the, us a uh, book together, and so they'll be bringing that review sometime here in the future. So, book reviews. Why do book reviews? I, I think it's just helpful uh, to let people out there who are listening to these podcasts know uh, what kind of books are out there and what's available right now, especially some of the the newer stuff that's being published and promoted right now by various Christian authors. I think doing a review of the book allows us to kind of look at the book I guess critically, although I don't that word has taken on such an interesting uh take, and I'll talk a little more about that and with the book that I'm going to be reviewing today or lightly reviewing I guess I think that mainly we're just looking at it in the light of scripture uh did the author use the scripture correctly? did the author do a good job of comparing what they're thought or what they're promoting in light of Scripture, or did they take some liberties with the Scripture, maybe pull some things out of context, things like that, that, that uh, a lot of people do in order to make their point. They approach Scripture with what they want to get out of it in their mind, and so they go hunting for Scriptures that support their thesis instead of kind of the other way around. So a little bit on how to do a review. If you want to do a book review, um, pick a book that you want to read through and and maybe present as a review. Read through it, first of all, just kind of do a a quick read through. And then if you can, go back and look at some of the key passages and some of the key uh, assertions that are being made in the book. And begin to look at those in the light of Scripture and see if the author actually made a good case for their assertions. and then. Look at what what the author's conclusions are, where the author took it to, and trying to make their case and in their conclusions, you know was their heart in the right place were they was it were they looking to you know try to reconcile or bring things together or is is their work actually possibly even causing more division so the book I'm looking at today is one by vodi Baham, and if you don't know who vodi Baham is, there's a a little piece in the back, it says, Vody T. Bauckham, Jr., a pastor and church planter, is the dean of the School of Divinity at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia, where he and his family have lived since 2015. Married more than 30 years, Vodhi and his wife, Bridget, have nine children and two grandchildren and are committed home educators, which is how I got familiar with Vodi was when we were homeschooling our kids There were some conferences and things we went to, and I want to say he actually either spoke at one or we had like a recording of something that he had taught that we were watching. Um, But I've heard the name before, and I've heard him before and heard him speak before, and he's a a very gifted orator. He, He is a pastor, and he knows how to use language and use oration in order to get his point across in a way that is... Generally, very easy to follow and with a lot of delivery and punch. So let me read the front jacket here real quick in the book. It says, The ground is moving. The death of George Floyd at the hands... Well, I guess I should tell you what the name of the book is first. It's called Fault Lines. The social justice movement and evangelicalism's looming catastrophe. Okay, that sounds pretty pretty daunting. And he says uh, in the front cover jacket leaf it says the ground is moving the death of george floyd at the hands of police in the summer of 2020 shocked the nation as riots rocked american cities christians affirmed from the pulpit and on social media that black lives matter and that racial justice is a gospel issue but what if there is more to the social justice movement than those christians understand even worse what if they what if they've been duped into preaching ideas that actually oppose the kingdom of god in this powerful book Votie Bauckham, a preacher, professor, and cultural apologist, explains the sinister worldview behind the social justice movement and critical race theory, revealing how it already has infiltrated some seminaries leading to internal denominational conflict, canceled careers, and lost livelihoods. Like a fault line, it threatens American culture in general, and the evangelical church in particular. Whether you're a lay person who has woken up in a strange new world and wonders how to engage sensitively and effectively in a conversation on race, or a pastor who is grappling with a polarized congregation, this book offers the clarity and understanding to either hold your ground or reclaim it. So that sounds pretty daunting as well, which I I thought was kind of interesting because the book largely the way it starts out is it, it talks about how he was raised and some of the, like one of the, chapters or i guess one of the paragraphs in here is called lessons my mother taught me and he talks about various experiences he had growing up as a young black man in america and he talks about his conversion to christianity how how he was saved he talks about how he wanted to learn more and went off to school and ended up becoming a theologian and it's all uh, very interesting. And one of the things he gets into when he starts talking about critical social justice and, and intersectionality and all these different aspects of largely the same movement, um, he footnotes everything like crazy. And he quotes as much as possible directly from the writings of the people who are, pro- who are promoting this movement. And and discussing people that, so it's, you know, it's a very well done book and and it is footnoted all the way through with, with all his source material. And, but I wanted to mainly talk about his conclusions. Uh, This is something that I I thought was really interesting. If you go towards the end of the book in chapter 11, there's a, the chapter title is called solid ground and it's not very long. So I'll just go ahead and read it for quoting from the book. In August 2006, I stood on African soil for the first time. It was an amazing two weeks. One Sunday, I was scheduled to preach at Evangel Baptist Church, pastored by Dr. Grave Singogo. When I arrived at the church, a spry 87 year old man approached me. He was Pastor Singogo's father. He introduced himself, shook my hand, gave me a giant African smile, and then a hug. He asked me, Is this your first time in Africa? I said, Yes. Somehow his smile got even bigger. He raised his left hand, his right hand never stopped shaking mine, grabbed my face, kissed me and exclaimed, son, welcome home. I completely lost it. There I stood in the dirt parking lot of a church I had never been to before and I just started sobbing. When I finally got myself together, I greeted more of the brethren, then found my way to my seat. As the service began, I was overcome with emotion once again. I thought about Papa Singogo's greeting and how much it had meant to me. I thought about how much my father, who had died four months before my trip, would have loved to be there with me. But there was more. I thought about the fact that my ancestors once inhabited the continent of Africa. That was until, for one reason or another, other Africans sold them into slavery, probably after taking them as slaves themselves. I thought about the horrors of the Middle Passage and the indignities of bondage in America. I thought about the fact that slavery had robbed me of so much that I didn't even know which African country my ancestors had come from, let alone which tribe. Then I thought about the moment at hand, and something switched. Suddenly I realized that I had traveled thousands of miles from the place of my ancestors' oppression into the place of their betrayal. And for the first time in my life, I forgave. I didn't forgive because I was big enough or godly enough man, nor did I forgive because anybody asked me to. I forgave because I was overcome by the weight and majesty of God's providence. By God's providence, my ancestors survived their ordeal. By God's providence, one of their descendants, me, had returned, not as a slave of men, but as a slave of Christ. By God's providence, I was born a free man and a citizen of the great republic, greatest republic in the history of mankind. By God's providence, I was numbered among the healthiest, freest, most prosperous people of any race, not just black people on the planet. By God's providence, I had received the best theological education available in the world. And by God's providence, he had brought me back to Africa to bless the descendants of the people who sold my ancestors into slavery. So I forgave. I forgave the Africans who took my ancestors' freedom. I forgave the Americans who bought and exploited them. I forgave the family that replaced my identity with their German name. I just forgave. I did not harbor any ill will. I did not feel entitled to any apologies or reparations. By God's grace, I recognized that providence had blessed me beyond my ancestors' wildest dreams, or my own. I couldn't help but remember Joseph's words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, 20. The way forward. In the end, it was for, it is forgiveness that will heal our wounds. My hope is not that white Christians can feel sorry enough for their past or that ministries and organizations can dig deep and grovel over enough historical dirt. That is not the powerful, life-changing, world-confounding message of the gospel. That is the message of the world. I have heard a mantra lately that rings hollow in my ears. There can be no reconciliation without justice. When I hear that, I want to scream, yes, and the death of Christ is that justice. All other justice is proximate and insufficient. It is because of Christ's work on the cross that we can heed the apostle's admonition. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Who am I to tell a white brother that he cannot be reconciled to me until he has dredged up all of the racial sins of his and his ancestors' past and made proper restitution? Christ has atoned for sin. Consequently, the most powerful weapon in our arsenal is not calling for reparations. It is forgiveness. Anti-racism knows nothing of forgiveness because it knows nothing of the gospel. Instead, anti-racism offers endless penance, judgment, and fear. What an opportunity we have to shine the light of Christ in the midst of darkness. I realized in 2006 that I had been blessed in order to be a blessing. I had been given much so that I could give much. A decade earlier, the Lord had called me to lead my family away from churches where everybody looked like us, and we became strangers in a strange land. Now He was calling me to go to a place where most everybody looked like us, and we would remain strangers in a strange land, Jeremiah 14.8. I am not an African. I am not an African-American. I am an American, and I wouldn't want to be anything else. America doesn't owe me anything. America has blessed me beyond measure. If anything, I owe America. More importantly, I owe my Savior, and by extension, I owe my brothers and sisters in Christ. This book was hard to write. I knew that no matter how careful I was, how ironic, differential, or gracious, the very content of this book would be deemed offensive, unkind, and insensitive. Some will go as far as calling it violence, so why write it? I wrote this book because I love God more than life the truth more than others' opinion of me, and the Bride of Christ more than my platform. My heart is broken as I watch movements and ideologies against which I have fought and warned for decades become entrenched at the highest and most respected levels of evangelicalism. I want this book to be a clarion call. I want to unmask the ideology of critical theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality in hopes that those who have imbibed it can have the blinders removed from their eyes and those who have bowed in the face of it can stand up, take courage, and contend for the faith that was once once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. I harbor no animosity against anyone named in these pages, and if you happen to agree with my perspective on these issues, I hope you don't either. My goal is not to destroy but to expose Ephesians 5.11, warn 2 Timothy 3.15, and correct 2 Timothy 2.25 in hopes that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. And yes, I do mean to call these ideologies demonic. Rise to the Challenge The history of the Church is replete with moments like these, moments where dear brothers disagreed passionately and publicly over issues they saw as threats to the gospel. This is such a moment. A moment like the one faced by Charles Spurgeon in The Downgrade, And J. Gresham Manchin facing modernism. In his moment, Manchin made a statement that could absolutely be made in ours. Men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. I hope this book helps better equip you to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth second timothy 2 15 i also hope to embolden you to pull back the curtain and expose the wizard call out the boy who cried wolf proclaim that the emperor has no clothes and any other metaphor you can think of for shedding light on these fault lines not so you can defeat your brethren in an argument but so that you can engage them with the hopes of winning them Love your brothers and sisters enough to contend with them and for them. Pastors, I beg you to consider what I have written here. I believe the church, your church, is under attack. As shepherds, we must defend the sheep. We must repel the wolves. And yes, the wolves are many. However, this one is within the gates and has the worst of intentions. He desires to use your genuine love for the brethren as leverage. Don't let him. Recognize the difference between the voice of the Good Shepherd who calls you to love all the sheep and the voice of the enemy that tells you some of them are guilty, blind, ignorant, oppressors, and that others are oppressed, all based on their melanin. Reject cries that, the, that take principles and stories of individual restitution, Numbers 5, 7, and Luke 19, and isogetically twist them into calls for multi-generational reparations. Reject the cries of those who twist the repentance of Daniel and Ezra, first to Ezra 1, on behalf of the theocratic Israel, and 2, for sin that took place during their lifetime in an effort to promote multigenerational ethnic guilt that rests upon all white people by virtue of their whiteness. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 5.16. And why is this? Because there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, Galatians three twenty-eight and 29. Beyond that, remember Ezekiel's words. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, the pro- this proverb shall be no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die, Ezekiel 18, 1 through 4 If you are a person who has imbibed this ideology, let it go. Find freedom in Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Why then would you hold on to guilt for sins committed by or against your distant grandparents? And if you do, why only stop at slavery and Jim Crow? What about the other commandments broken by our distant kin? No, beloved, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1 nine. That is who we are, since as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalms 103:12. And because of this we can rest on the reconciliation that Christ has secured for us. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Ephesians 2, 4, 8, 14 through 18 The Jew-Gentile divide was far more significant than the black-white one. If Christ took care of that on the cross, how much more did he take care of any man-made division we face today? Does that mean there is no more racism? Of course not. Does that mean it is not important for us to get to know each other, to hear one another's stories? If I believed that, I wouldn't have written the first two chapters of this book. What this does mean is that we do not occupy the space of oppressors and oppressed based solely on our melanin. Does that mean our ethnicity is irrelevant? I leave you with God's answer to that. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be our God forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. End quote. So I read that chapter and it's relatively short and most of the chapters in this book are are fairly short and um, to kind of let you know where his heart's coming from and what it's about. So if you were interested in taking up this book and reading through his arguments um, against the social justice movement. I think that, um, you can maybe give him a little grace for where he's trying to come from now. Does he actually make the point? I think he does. He's, he's a pretty good writer and a good apologist. I, he uses the scripture, I think in a, in a way that is consistent with someone who, who truly studies and understands the word. Is it encouragement if you want to try and look through that book, and maybe we could discuss it uh, on the podcast at some point. I think it would be a lot of fun. And with that, I thank you all for, for listening and listening to me uh, talk a little bit about this book. I, I would like to come back and maybe visit it a little later after I read through it a little more thoroughly. Maybe Maybe my opinion will change on it. I don't know. We'll see. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, thanking you, Lord, for this opportunity to put our thoughts out there and and get people discussing some of these issues. Uh, this whole issue of race and and uh, going back and forth of oppressed and oppressors and all these other ideologies that are there seem to be all sort of coming out at once. Um, the church is really struggling to handle all of this, and Lord, I pray that your hand would be upon the church that you would help each and every one of us to. Search the scriptures and look for what is actually true in all of this and and look for ways where we can make reconciliations, where we can help to um, be people of peace, but at the same time also be able to be true to your word and to the admonitions that you give us in your word. And Father, I just thank you for uh, our church. I thank you, Lord, for the men and women that attend. And I pray, Father, that you would help each and every one of us to stay true to you, to walk uh, in the Spirit, and to walk with you on a daily basis. And I just pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and found it thought-provoking. The Upper Room is a Bible Fellowship Church production. The opinions discussed by our guests are just opinions and random thoughts at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the doctrine or stated beliefs of Bible Fellowship Church.